This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And I'm delighted to be here today with Bill Crystal, who will be familiar to many of you, as Bill has been one of America's great public intellectuals over the past 40 years. After growing up in Manhattan, Bill went to Harvard, where he received his BA and PhD in political philosophy. He then worked for Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan and taught politics at the University of Pennsylvania and then at Harvard. Subsequently, he served for eight years, the duration of the Reagan administration, as the chief of staff to Education Secretary Bill Bennett, and after that, as the chief of staff to Vice President Dan Quayle, where the New Republic immortalized him as Dan Quayle's brain. Following his service in government, Bill founded the Weekly Standard, which became the main organ of American conservative thought, with Bill as its focal point through which people and ideas pass through on a daily basis. He has recently founded The Bulwark. Bill, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be with you, and uh, I really look forward to this. I admire what you're doing here. Well, thank you. So before we get into your chosen passage, which is Deuteronomy 34.10, just one question about growing up. So, Bill, you are the son of the two towering intellectuals of 20th century American political and social conservatism, Irving Kristol and Gertrude Himmelfarb. What was your dinner table like? It was great. I mean, but my parents were un as you know, having known them both, uh, they yes. were they were not pretentious about their intellectual achievements. And we talked about a million things, a lot of sports. My father was a big sports fan, as I always was. Went to a lot of Mets games as a kid with him and uh, Knicks games, and then went by myself, obviously, as I got older. So there's a lot of sports, a lot of TV. They actually liked to relax in the evening by watching various shows in the 60s, Perry Mason and that kind of thing. And so it was not as, um, I mean, I do think I learned a fair amount from them by listening to their conversations and asking them questions. And they would sometimes talk about their friends and intellectual friends, political friends, but it was a more normal, I think, <laughs> boyhood than, than people think when they think, oh, you know, such a New York City intellectual household. So a conversation would have been just as likely to be about uh, Willis Reed and Art Shamsky and Bill Bradley as it would have been about Lord Acton and Edmund Burke. Yeah, I'm impressed that you're, by your knowledge of 60s Mets and uh, <laughs> and Knicks before you were born, probably, right? And yeah. yeah, no, the, I always say the highlight of my youth was the year of 69, 70. So I went to, I, I left high school in 1970, went to college, and that was actually the last time I really lived in New York. I lived there for a summer in 76, but I've never lived full-time in New York since leaving for college, uh, which is sort of one of those things you grew up in New York. You can't, of course, you expect to live as, a, as an adult in New York, but obviously I've been there a million times, and family members, as you know, live there and so forth, but sure. do live there. But in 69-70, the Jets won the Super Bowl in January of 69. So that was the end of the 68-69 season. Huge upset, first time AFC team uh, won, then AFL, I guess, team uh, won against the you know, National Football League. And then in 19, late 69, the Mets won the National League Championship and the World Series in an unbelievable upset. They'd been, of course, one of the worst teams in baseball since starting in 1962. That was the Miracle Mets of 69. And then the Knicks won in 70 with a fantastic uh, Willis Reed hobbling onto the court for the seventh game, I guess it was, against the Lakers. Right. So, and I, and I was a huge Mets fan and a huge Knicks fan and a huge Jets fan. I, I had always liked the underdogs, so I rooted for the Mets as opposed to the Yankees, for the Jets as opposed to the Giants. The Knicks weren't particularly good, so I rooted for the hometown team there. 
And so that was a great culmination. I always say my high school years are very happy because in the last year and a half, the three teams I love the most wanted it. I've never had a stretch like that. I'm not ready, you know, it's one of those things where your 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 fan experience, your experience as a fan peaks when you're 17 years old. So maybe that's problematic for the next 50 years, but it was still, that, that was the highlight of my, uh, one of the highlights of growing up in uh, on the west side of Manhattan. So that's a good segue to the Torah portion because uh, never again will there be a year in sports for a city like it was for New York in 6970. And in the Bible, in Deuteronomy 3410, it says, never again has there arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom Hashem has known face to face. So Bill, why did you choose this passage of all the passages in the Torah to discuss, 3410 through 12, these are the last words of the Torah, the conclusion of Deuteronomy. I mean, I will stipulate at the beginning here, I am no expert at all on this, and some of the ideas are just thoughts I have, and I, I hope it stimulates some other thinking, but uh, many, many people have thought much more deeply and much more learnedly about uh, these final verses of the Torah. If you go back to, let's just take the whole, just to situate it a little bit. So Deuteronomy has all this re, the sort of second teaching, you might say, of, of uh uh, of the laws and and uh, on the part of Moses to uh, to the to the Israelites, and then in thirty three, the next to last chapter of the Torah of Deuteronomy, there's Moses's blessings upon the Israelites and the tribes, and then in thirty four, there's the sort of final conversation of Moses with God, which we should probably look at for a second, which is the first half, first part of that chapter, and then this amazing conclusion, the last three verses, uh, where the narrator of the Bible seems to say, well, it does say, never again did there arise in Israel a prophet like Moses, which is so interesting in so many ways, because it steps out of the narration, right? I mean, yes. not, I mean, almost like a commentator. Yeah, it is a, com- well, because, and it's a commentator from the future, because right. he's saying what's going to happen in the future, or what has happened between the time of Moses and whatever time this narrator is narrating, and then presumably looking to the future as well. But if you go back a minute, I, 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 to 34, verse 4, which is the last conversation of Moses, Moses and the Lord, it's reported. It's a very striking ending. I mean, here you have this, the greatest figure, obviously, greatest human figure in the, in the Bible. And he ends up disappointed, doesn't he, don't you think? And, Absolutely. And the, not a terribly comforting final conversation. The Lord said to him, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will assign it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your own eyes. You shall not cross there. And that, that's because earlier he's explained to Moses and explained to us why Moses doesn't get to actually go into the promised land, but only to see it. And then Moses dies. That's the last thing he hears. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there. So what do you make of that, Mark? I mean, that the final, com- what is the teaching of that? The final conversation between God, uh, between the Lord and Moses is sort of a, you know, telling Moses something he's not going to get to do, right? Not a thank you, not a sort of clap on the back, not an exaltation of what they have accomplished together. But as, uh, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? I think psychologically that it ends with that. Well, I think it, it teaches us that a great Jewish story must end unfinished. So here's Moses, the hero of the Bible, and we're told the hero of all mankind to follow, and his story ends unfinished. He dies without having achieved his singular goal, which is to get to the promised land. I think back to what uh, Shimon Peres said when uh, Shimon Peres, the president of Israel, was asked, what is the greatest Jewish contribution to humanity? And he said, dissatisfaction. Yeah, that's good. I think that's a really, I think that's a good way of putting it the way you put it. It seems like the Bible wants us not to sort of have a 
utopian view of what's going to happen in the future, and even a utopian view of human achievement, of human happiness. Moses had this incomparable life, but even he is denied something at the end, and you might say ends in a, he had asked God to be kept alive longer, God had said no, and now he says, okay, now is the time, you don't get to even step into into the promised land. So there's a kind of a hard-headedness about the Bible, right? the limits of what human achievement, which doesn't mean one shouldn't totally respect that achievement and and strive for it and uh, uh, cherish it and exalt it. But I, I'm very struck by that compared to what you, you could think of all the other ways it could end that would be so much more uplifting and edifying in a certain simple way, perhaps, you know, and it, and it uh, seems to go out of its way not to be in a sense. Uh, yeah. The, that Moses dies and is buried somewhere where we don't know, right? Where we're not, we don't, uh, the Bible emphasizes that. No, we don't know. And I, it was interesting that Aristotle defined a story as needing an ending. And here, the Bible is defining the Jewish story as not having an ending. Yeah, that's good, I think. And also, so that's one half of it. I say the other half, now to get to the never again did there arise in Israel the prophet like Moses is, but there's also a real uh, emphasis. It's clear the Bible, A, does not want Moses to be treated as more than a man. I mean, that's why there's no, we, I think we don't know his burial site. We're not going to go to some place and gradually elevate him into kind of a semi-divine figure and so forth. There's a real, it's funny how the Bible before Christianity, honestly, before all kinds of other religions and religious sects and whatever is is sort of conscious of the human temptation, perhaps, to elevate a man to being a god and really leans hard against that. Right. And so that's, I think, very much part of the, you know, keeping Moses in his place, if I could put it a sort of stupid way, maybe, but... As, as, as just a man, a great man, but a man, that's it. Right, right. And then at 3410, the last three verses, he's a great man, and there's not going to be another one like him. So the Bible's, ner- I think, worried, and you see this throughout, I think, Exodus and Numbers as well, the, uh, the Bible, if I can talk about the... The Bible, you know, you use the Bible as the term for the author, so to speak. The Bible's worried about the human tendency to want to believe prophecy, whether it's well-founded or not. And there's other occasions where the, there's actually guidance given as to how you can judge whether prophets are, are true or false. But here, there's a real, again, Moses did this. This is an amazing accomplishment and achievement, but don't think it's going to happen again. So again, the Bible sort of ahead of time is warning against the temptations to when someone else comes along and says, we can do better than Moses, and I'm more of a prophet than Moses. It's a pretty, again, unusual way, instead of ending in a self-congratulatory note or in a, a in a way at a high note, it ends in a kind of a high note, but it's also kind of a warning note, you might say. No, no, no prophet like Moses, whom the Lord singled out face to face. So when the next person shows up and says, hey, I've had a face-to-face conversation with the Lord, the Bible explicitly says, frankly, don't don't believe him, you know? Or that's, that's right. Or when the next person comes and says, I can get to my promised land, I can achieve all my goals. The Bible's telling us, no, you can't, because Moses is the greatest ever to live that will ever live, and he couldn't do it. Right, which I think that makes, and this is just when we think of Jewish history, the rabbis, the whole tradition after the destruction of the temple, the, the importance of continuation, of preserving the tradition, continuing it, elaborating on it, improving it if possible, updating it and all that, getting a deeper understanding of it. But it's a very much of a um, yeah non non utopian in a sense understanding of of what Judaism is about and religions have a sort of tendency towards utopianism you might say there's a kind of they're obviously sort of the religious impulse is 
linked, you might say, with a utopian impulse in, in the human soul, perhaps, for just a better world and a better life and a transformation of our life. And the Bible's pretty hard-headed. I mean, it's it's full of great things that, about the Jewish people and the, the what it means to be a holy nation and the incredible role and, 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 and gratitude we should have for being selected as, as, as the Bible suggests we were, but, but also a kind of limitation on the utopianism and on the pride, really, you know, that, I mean, we're, we're continuing this tradition. We're not taking it to a new level. You know what they say when business, we're taking this to a new level, you know, that's not what we're, the Bible sort of doesn't really expect that, you know? So what do you think the author of the Torah is suggesting in 3412 when he says, and by all the strong hand and awesome power that Moses performed before the eyes of Israel, what act is he referring to? So that's a very interesting point, which as you know, and we discussed this a little before, the, the Rashi in particular is very interested and has a very, you know, I'd say unorthodox in a certain sense, and certainly the other commentators have taken it that way, interpretation of that. But let's just look at those two verses. So it seems that if you look at 34, 11, and 12, so the, uh, Moses is praised, the Lord sent signs and portents to him to display in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his courtiers and his whole country. So that's kind of one thing we know that from Exodus. And that's very much there, more the Lord's using Moses, you might say, to uh, uh, displaying, sending things to Moses to display. What's amazing about the final verse, the very final verse of the whole Torah, it doesn't mention the Lord. And it seems to give Moses quite a lot of autonomy, you might almost say, in whatever he did. And I take it, if you just take it chronologically, it seems like verse 11 is about what happened in Egypt, and verse 12 is about what happened once they left Egypt. And for all the great might and awesome power that Moses displayed before all Israel. Israel is the last word of the Torah. That seems appropriate, I think. But Moses is the mentioned right before that. God not mentioned, the Lord not mentioned in that final verse. First, there's a slight implication there, I think, of just how important Moses was, especially once they got out of Egypt. A slight uh, lesson there, maybe, that you have to govern yourself. The Lord will help you and did help us at this absolutely crucial moment in liberating us in a way that we couldn't have done ourselves. I think that's, wouldn't you say, that's kind of the teaching of Exodus. Absolutely. I certainly stress it. But, but the flip side of that is the Lord isn't going to kind of keep on governing you through the generations when you've got your own state and your own gen and your own people. That's kind of your task. I think that, that of course, is also confirmed by what happens for the rest of the, the Bible, the Tanakh, as opposed to the Torah, as God in a way, recedes from the action, you might say, and is less, you know, he never speaks to anyone again face-to-face. Of course, we see that here, but also, uh, you know, becomes more of a human story as you go through the historical books and then culminating in, in Esther, where God's not mentioned. So this sort of, that's implied, I think, in this last verse, that this is up to you as a human matter to govern yourselves. I, if I had to pick one idea that's, if, you could, if one could say so boldly, what's the theme of the Torah, it very well might be partnership the partnership between God and man. And I think what you're pointing out is that here Moses is getting the credit at the end because everything Moses did, he obviously does with God's help or God's blessing. And God actually doesn't do anything in the Torah without a person after he creates the world. In other words, after he creates man, man is his partner in everything he does. And I think that notion of partnership for exactly the reasons that you articulate comes out so clearly here. Right, and Rashi, so to get to his interpretation, he says, well, what is the particular thing that Moses, what's his, the might and power that Moses displayed? And I suppose one could say, well, it's, almost, it's an awful lot of stuff that happens in Exodus after, after the departure from, from, from 
Egypt and different commentators apparently focus, I don't know much about this, but they focus on different things, you know, that Moses does, obviously, that are very, very important. Rashi says no, especially though, the breaking of the tablets when he comes down from Mount Sinai and, and uh, sees the golden calf, you know, having been constructed and decides apparently on his own, I guess there's some textual support for this in Exodus, which one could go back and look at, that uh, Moses seems to decide to break the tablets. Yes. That the people aren't ready for this at that moment, based on what he's seeing. I think God says to him afterwards, right, something about you have broken the tablets. Not There's no implication in the Bible. God told Moses to do it. And afterwards, God seems to ascribe it to Moses. Not, you know, he could have said, right, you know, inspired inspired right. by me, you did this. But he doesn't say that. It's sort of a human act. No, human no, he, he scripted to Moses. So that's what, yeah, he says to Moses, the tablets, he said, bring the tablets that you broke in Exodus. It's it's Moses broke them. And uh, yeah, I think it's so interesting here that, and I, I think textually, the evidence that it's the breaking of the tablets that is the last thing that God is basically, that God is thanking Moses in his last words for breaking the tablets is that the breaking of the tablets is the act that Moses performed before the eyes of all Israel. That's the only act that he, Moses performed before the eyes of all Israel. So when the narrator is saying the strong hand and awesome power that Moses performed before the eyes of all Israel, that has to be it. It has to be the breaking of the tablets. Yeah, that's what Rashi suggests. And I think that seems reasonable. And it also seems appropriate in a way that because it's a human action, it seems almost to be a to go contrary to what God might have intended in giving them to him, right? I mean, it's a pretty bold action, let's put it that way. Um, but at the end, as you say, Moses is praised for that. And the Bible closes, in fact, with praise for that, as if, now we're not supposed to imitate Moses exactly, there'll never be anyone again like Moses, so we're not encouraged to go around breaking tablets or, you know, rewriting the, the code or the, the legal code or anything like that. But I mean, we are encouraged, I think, to look at that as a model of, of human action and, and of not being, I think in this, of being simply submissive, I guess is the way I would put it. You, you called it a partnership, and I think that's that's good. I mean, I think the Bible leans pretty hard against a kind of excessive, yes. I don't know if this is quite the right word, but fundamentalism, you might say, or, or you know, uh, simple bowing down to God and assuming that we just wait for him to tell us what to do and then and he's going to tell us and then we just act dutifully. You know, that, that's, of course, a part of that in Judaism. Uh, a very important part, but it's also the need for doing a, having a little bit of that spirit that Moses displayed, and which we're, we're reminded of in this very, very last in this very last verse. Right, and there's actually no Hebrew word for obedience. Oh, is that right? I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, and it and it it really coheres with what you're saying about the last line of Deuteronomy, which is that Moses is praised. The, the The final thing we learn in the Great Torah is that Moses is praised for breaking the tablets. God gives him the tablets; he breaks them, and that according to the author of the Torah, seemingly, is Moses' greatest act. And I also think it's significant that it comes at the very end of the Torah. So, you know, we've come to the end of the, the proof that at least God, that God was at least very deeply involved in the writing of the Torah is that it's simply too good to be written by man alone. I mean, just too good. It's a different level. It's a different game. It's too good. So we come to the conclusion of the Torah and it might be an intimidating experience. We've had all these laws, all these rules, all these stories with implications and lessons, and one might think, how can I, this mere mortal, this broken person, possibly contend and live up to the ideals of this great book? And the answer is, the greatest thing Moses did was break the tablets, and God loves the broken. This is what God loves. At the end of it, God loves the broken. God wants you to bring your broken self to him, just like 
God told Moses, bring the broken tablets into the ark. So bring your broken self. If you're not perfect, if you're not complete, you know what? Nobody is in this world. So come with the broken parts and that's what it means to be a Jew. Yeah, that's good, I think. That's really, I think that's very well said. The other part of this, I'd say, is is the Torah conspicuously, I mean, so sometimes it is said to be, of course, the work of Moses, the, the Torah, and it's somehow inspired by God, and that people, different believers, will have different ways of understanding that, obviously, or, or non-believers too. But clearly at the end, it's a little, the Torah wants to confuse that a little bit or complicate that a little bit by going beyond the death of Moses. So it's a little weird. He can't simply be the narrator because now we're here. He, he was the narrator through verse 30, uh, chapter 33, his final blessings to the people of Israel, but he can't be the narrator of things that happened, you know, of his own death and of, and of this final closing reflection on, on himself and on that there won't be a prophet like him afterwards. So the Bible sort of, I think, wants to say there that, look, the, obviously, somehow the Bible is divinely inspired, somehow Moses is divinely inspired, obviously, and, and, and writes the, uh, it's thought, I think, by Jews to be the author somehow of, we call them the five books of Moses, but they're not quite, you know, it's not like Islam where, where, where it's literally, as I understand it, the uh, Quran is sort of the, the word of Allah. I mean, it, it's, you know, divinely dictated almost. I think Mormons have something like that too. It's a little different because here's this narrator telling us about how we're supposed to think about Moses and clearly someone who lives after you, I'd say, after Moses. I always think one reason I've always struck by this is I learned this on, on the High Holidays in the conservative prayer book that we use in our synagogue. The, uh, there's an interesting commentary. So th- there's that prayer we say, not just on the High Holidays, all the time when we lift the Torah, and it's, you know, this is the Torah, God's word by Moses' hand, which Moses said before the people of Israel. So it's al pi adonai biyad Moshe. Hmm. So the word of God in the hand of uh, Moses. And I've always assumed, well, that's some phrase from the Bible, it turns out it's a conflation of two verses in the Bible, Deuteronomy 4.44 and Numbers 9.23. The, the Bible does say that it's al Piadnai, that it's the word of God, and it does say that it's the Yad Moshe in Moses' hand, but it doesn't say them together. And interestingly, this commentary in the, uh, in the New Conservative Prayer Book says, the great Orthodox Jewish thinker, Rav Soloveitchik, refused to say this Thing. This is what we just sort of sing it, you know, when we don't think much about it, honestly, when people are lifting up the Torah, right, and the, the services. And, but Soloveitchik wouldn't say it because he thought, I take it the reason he wouldn't say it is he thought this was a little too fundamentalist, if I can put it this way. It's not exactly God's word by Moses' hand. It's inspired by God, or it's God's word in some general sense, and it's Moses' hands, sort of. But if you think of the very end, as I think of by the Torah, and it's consistent with what we've been talking about here, to kind of make sure that we understand that it's, it's you know, again, to cut against the sort of excessive fundamentalism, if I can put it that way. This, this requires human understanding, human interpretation to understand what has been done, what God's word really is, or what Moses's own role in this really was. Fascinating. Well, Bill, thank you for such an interesting conversation about uh, Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12, the end of the Torah. One final question, unrelated, but anyway, in a very different book, Andre Malru's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir, he tells the story of running into a man with whom he served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. And he said to this priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the man said, I've learned two things. He said, one, that everyone is much less happy than they seem. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Bill, in your 40 years 
as a public intellectual, as a leader of the American conservative movement and American political thinking in general, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? Yeah, that's tough. I, I'm uh, I, I, I'm so tempted to give one of those you know cutesy answers about uh, I've learned that there you can never summarize what you should learn about what you can learn about mankind in two things or something. <laughs> I would have said the opposite of Malraux, incidentally. The one thing I have learned is there are people who are adults. Uh, they become adults and they think as adults. You can disagree with them, of course. But, and there are people who don't. I mean, I think I guess I would say that's a pretty fundamental distinction. And more people, as I've gotten older, the failure of a lot of people to be basically adult, by which I would mean, you know, basically try to be responsible, try to make an argument for why you're to defend the course of action you're recommending. I'm thinking now of public policy and public life to some degree. The number of people who still operate on emotional uh, emotionalism or instinct or, you know, some vague doctrine they once heard without comparing it to reality. I'm a little struck by how difficult it is for people to be adults in that in that sense. So maybe that's what Malraux is sort of suggesting ultimately, that, you know, it is uh, people aren't as, uh, all these big shots aren't as adult-like as you would like them to be. But I certainly say I've found that to be true. And I guess relatedly, maybe that's since I've been rethinking some parts of conservatism with uh, Trump's ascendancy and so forth. I mean, the degree to which people do not sort of look at the world and try to learn from it, but bring to bear certain kind of presuppositions. We all do that, of course, but and then try to impose it. And, and just, it's hard to jar them out of, uh, my father had that famous joke about, you know, a liberal, a neoconservative is a liberal who's mugged by reality. And it was a very light hearted comment and it finally became in a way maybe more famous than it deserves. But I think when you think about it for a minute, it's not so easy. A lot of people get mugged by reality all the time. Learning the lesson from that isn't so easy. And an awful lot of people manage not to learn lessons from it, whether incidentally they're conservative lessons or liberal lessons, if you want to do it that way. But, you know, that, that it's uh, people are much more closed minded than than I guess I would have thought when I was young. And I figured, well, part of being a grown up and adult is that you you do learn from reality. But it turns out to be harder than than one might have thought. Why do you think it's so hard? I mean, your parents classically did it and defined it. And as you said, your, your father coined the, the phrase, which is now famous. Why aren't more people who are mugged by reality? Why don't they they change when given a, a set of facts which calls into question what they previously thought? Why do you think that it's difficult for them to change? I mean, I guess the obvious reason is people have a real stake in what they've thought. You know, we can say, oh, that's a sunk cost. You should just move on. But of course, your reputation, if you're at all well-known or you're even among your friends, your positions you've defended, choices you made in your life, you don't want to say that, gee, I kind of did something that now in retrospect was foolish. I guess I used to think, I'll answer it this way. It's a good, it's a good question, the way you put it. I mean, I remember reading about former communists, you know, who left communism at different times from 1940 all the way through the Hungarian Revolution in 56 and after. But people like Whitaker Chambers, I mean, people who were communists as adults, not, not like my parents who were Petroskiettes when they were 18 or something. That's not, that's not so hard to believe when you realize it's wrong. But And I always used to think, how come people stayed so long? I mean, these are people who were extremely intelligent, great artists, novelists, essayists, uh, literary figures, not just literary figures. And they sort of stayed with this doctrine that just obviously was was both wrong and dangerous and and, and damaging uh, for, for for so many more years than you would have thought. I think it's part of it is just the it's difficult to say you know what I was wrong and not just I was wrong when I was eighteen or twenty. I was wrong when I was thirty and thirty five, and I was already pretty well known. And I wrote a whole book that was wrong or a whole series of them that were based on a misunderstanding of human nature and human history. So I think that's harder to do than people think. You know, and, and Jonathan, uh, 
Heidt's book, uh, The Righteous Mind, he, he tells of an experiment in 2004 when people were put under an fMRI machine and uh, the views of their candidate, Bush or Kerry, were, uh, were stated. He said, when the views, when your views were stated or when the views of your candidate were stated, the pleasure receptors in the brain lit up as though you were eating chocolate or having an orgasm. <laughs> so it's, it's almost like there's an evolutionary bias towards confirming one's beliefs and digging in. And there are other studies I think that show that if you take the same statement and ascribe to the candidate you support, people say, yes, I agree with that. Even if it's the opposite of what he actually, he or she actually believes, right? Because people, yeah, tribalism goes, goes deep, I guess. And a lot of that's based on a kind of your own identity being, your own self-image being so much part of that. Right. Well, Bill, thank you as ever for such an interesting conversation. I greatly appreciate your wisdom today as I have for the past several decades. So thank you. My pleasure, Mark. 